And welcome to another episode of the Macari Sellers Podcast. Today, we have one of my good friends from the other side of the aisle, somebody that we uh, hang out with or used to hang out with, but life and family have kind of uh, made sure that we were uh, separate and apart. But he does have a new book coming out, Under Fire, 13 Rules for Surviving Cancel Culture and Other Crises or Crisis, Crises. 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 We'll figure out how to pronounce it as we go. <laughs> but what's going on, Wesley Donahue? How you feeling, man? What's up, man? Feeling great. It's been a while. It's been too long. Um, you know, we start each one of my shows the same way. Uh, and I want to I want to kind of start right there with you, which is walk us through the arc of your career. Um, I know your career has been one that has been in politics, but there's you're, you're more multifaceted than that. So walk us through the arc of your career and how you ended up where you are today. Yeah, man. I mean, it's a long story. We could talk about that the whole 20 minutes, but I'll try to knock it out in like uh, 45 seconds. Uh, you know, look, I'm a white conservative Republican, but, you know, I come from the other side of the tracks, uh, as they would say, grew up in Section 8 housing, welfare kid. And, um, you know, the only white kid in my, in my uh, you know, my apartment complex. Uh, but before that was, you know, white trailer trash, really single wide trailer with holes in the floor. And, uh, that experience, you know, showed me that uh, what the world was really like kind of forced me to become a conservative. I know a lot of times that would that would send people the other way, but I, I saw things a little different in the world. And uh, when I got to high school, I met a state senator and uh, just kind of fell in love with politics because I kind of wanted to change the world like all of us. Right. Like yeah. I saw all this bad stuff. Let's go out and change the world. And I volunteered on a campaign in high school, went to college, became a political science major and worked at the state house, which went to University of South Carolina, which, you know, is, for those who don't know, is pretty much on the state house and campus are, are pretty much connected. <laughs> I was able to walk up to the state house for work um, in between classes and uh, met a bunch of political consultants, started working on every political campaign I could, um, helped Jim DeMint get elected in 2004 and went and ran someone's firm for about five years. And then eventually social media started blowing up and I knew it would become a thing in politics like it was becoming a thing in marketing. So I started one of the first Republican digital agencies that's now at uh, about 60 people. We're located in downtown Charleston, but now we're doing a lot of corporate work too. So you know, I wrote this book, which is a lot of uh, like our corporate stories, but specifically like how we we saved SeaWorld after PETA came after them. And that company just about went after, uh, out of business and we, we stepped in and saved them. Well, let, let's, let's back up a little bit because one of the things before we get into this book that of course I want to, the reason why you're here is to talk about this book, but let, let's talk about uh, push digital and frothy beer some of the other yeah. things yeah. that you're doing talk to me about the work that you all do at push what that means and then talk to me about this brewery thing that you got going on yeah man so uh, push digital like i said 60 people charleston so it's divided between political work to so a lot of campaigns um you know some big dogs you might have heard of like marco rubio we did tom cotton's race david purdue the first time cindy hyde smith we're doing herschel walker oh I'm, you, you lucky you said the first first time right <laughs> we're doing herschel walker down in georgia right now well hopefully hopefully you'll be zero and two in georgia <laughs> <So> go ahead <laughs> uh but um you know that that got us into issue advocacy work around the country and then corporate work so work for like uh sea world as i said home shopping networking qvc steers and kmart during their bankruptcy and um you know started making money and i love craft beer you know you and i used to do some some heavy drinking together when we were younger before kids and uh i decided to we uh, still do the heavy drinking we just don't do it together <laughs> right. anymore 
Um, so I, I entered into a partnership, bought majority ownership of a brewery called Frothy Beard Brewing in Charleston, just opened up our second location and then um, doing a lot of real estate stuff too. And, you know, just trying to diversify, man. You can't put all your eggs in one basket and politics is so, you know, unreliable. So um, become a little bit of a serial entrepreneur, I guess you would say. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. You know, one of the things that you talked about, and I talk, I talk about it a lot, but we talk about it independently is mental health. Talk about that journey. And I think that ties in a lot to this, uh, this book that you're writing and cancel culture. We'll get into that too, but talk about your journey. I mean, are you, you're physically fit. You do all of these other things. You're raising your family. Talk about some of these other, as, as some of the Republicans who listen to this show or young people who want to get into politics or just people in general, talk about your journey as, as, as a man maturing. It's something we talk about a lot on this show. Yeah. Um, man, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a big one, right? I, I, people are always talking about their purpose in life and, I've kind of distilled my purpose in life down to, uh, I want to change the direction of my family tree. And I got three little boys, um, you know, three, five, and eight, and they're everything to me, my wife and my three little boys, my wife and I've been married 17 years and I, man, I'm living the dream right now, but, um, I, I didn't come from the dream. And when it comes to mental health, you know, both of my parents were big time addicts. Both of them were dead before the age of 52, uh, my dad was uh, bipolar, um, in and out of mental institutions my entire childhood, um, was a, eventually became um, a, a crackhead and then a meth addict in and out of prison and um, eventually died of cancer. But the doctor on his deathbed told me that, you know, it was really the meth, not the cancer. By the time he had cancer, he had no immune system. You know, he looked like one of those bald, no teeth kind of meth head scabbed all over his body. And my mom uh, suffered, uh, you know, a lot too, uh, due to a lot of the beatings from my father, uh, developed um, what's called fibromyalgia, degenerative back disease, and, you know, um, became addicted to opioids. And then in 2003, my little sister found my mom dead in bed from an opioid overdose. And so mental illness and addiction, um, I've had, besides my mom, uh, a cousin and two aunts die of opioid overdoses. You know, so drug addiction and mental health is something that's prevalent in my family, something that's, you know, hit me hard. And when I say I want to change the direction of my family tree, I mean, I've got a, a family that's just plagued by poverty, um, addiction, mental health and divorce. And I think being married at 17 now, 17 years now, I might have set a record for my family. <laughs> You've been married 17 years now? 17 years, brother. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? 
No, she needs to order the palmetto for giving <laughs> you for 17 I know, years. I know. <laughs> I know, but I, I talk a lot about that in the book about um, mental health and mental toughness. And, um, you know, that's also why I've become such an endurance athlete, man. It's just because my parents died at such an early age, not just mental health, but physical health. You know, I've, I'm, you know, big into Ironman races, run 25 marathons, ultra marathons. So uh, I, I put a big, big priority on that. So let's talk about this book. I mean, people understand what type of person you are. We we wholeheartedly disagree on politics, but we love each other nonetheless. I think we need more of that in our political discourse. But what prompted you to write the book Under Fire? Yeah, you know, we, we I think you and I actually have a lot more in common than than a lot of people would think. But, but it's because this country has become so divisive. Nobody wants to talk anymore. And, and discourse has really gone to hell. And a lot of that's created this cancel culture uh you know, that we find ourselves in. So I wrote the book because, you know, I've, I had an issue where I was canceled. Uh, I think you've probably been through some similar controversies. I remember at least once, I remember a story about a tweet that blew up for you too. So I've had a personal situation where, you know, people don't want to just talk about the missteps you make. They don't want, they want to forget that we're just all humans going through a human experience and that we all make mistakes. Like, you're not Jeffrey Epstein, you're not Bill Cosby, you're not Harvey Weinstein, right? These are just really horrible people that deserve to be canceled. But sometimes we're just normal people that just make a mistake and say the wrong thing. And that also translates to politicians or celebrities or even corporations where they're not being bad people. They just say the wrong thing. And because this course has gone the way it has, people try to ruin them. They don't want to just put them out of work. They want to ruin their entire lives. So after uh, going through it myself, after helping see what was your tweet? I don't even remember. And remember when um, this was, this is weird, right? Because now everybody is cracking the same joke I made about four years ago when Alabama was going through their abortion debate, I made some pro-life comments on Twitter and a bunch of women came back at me. You're like, you're a man, shut the hell up. You don't get an opinion on this. And I, crack back. Well, for the remainder of the day, I'm going to self-identify as a woman so that I can have an opinion on abortion. So you made a really bad joke. It was I got a bad it. joke. Look, I talk about that in the book, right? Like yeah. I'm not a comedian. Don't try to be a comedian. What I was trying to do, <laughs> yeah. I, I was trying to, I was trying to point out the hypocrisy of, of some of the liberal arguments of like, you don't get an opinion because of your gender on Monday, but then on Tuesday, gender doesn't matter. And I was trying to point out that hypocrisy and it came back to bite me in the ass. And uh, I should have never cracked that joke because I'm not a comedian. It wasn't funny, really. Uh, but man, I had the LGBTQ community boycotting my brewery. I had some gay staff trying to, you know, wanting to walk out. Uh, I was on the front page of the local newspaper three days in a row and it got bad. And, I, you know, I think you know me. I'm not a I don't hate anybody. I, I try to approach everybody with love. I've got gay staff. I, I love them. And uh, it was just a bad joke, me trying to point out some hypocrisy. And how did you overcome that? And what, what steps? I mean, you talk about it in the book. So what, what steps did you go through? And then tell me how that translates into like, say, Seawalk. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's an, a time to apologize um, and a time not to apologize. What I decided to do was not to go out and make some big public stance and apologize publicly. What I did is I went to the individuals that I'm closest with inside of my company. Cause like, I don't, I'm never going to be able to convince the outside world who I am, right? They're never going to be able to go and sit down and have a beer with me. Like you and I have sat and had beers. I don't care what anybody ever says about Bakari Sellers. I know your heart because you and I have hung out and had many beers together. And I know 
that, you know, you could have Republicans all over the internet bashing the hell out of you saying you're this, that, and the other, but I know what's in your heart and I know you're a good human being. So I decided that I was never going to be able to convince the world. So I was just going to go to my staff. I was going to sit down with my gay friends and tell them specifically what was in my heart and tell them how I feel about, you know, the gay movement or liberalism. And specifically, I told them two things. I said, look, as a Christian, I'm commanded to love everybody and I love you. And as a Republican, as a conservative, I believe you should be able to love who you want to love and do what you want to do with your body without government interference. And I'm wholeheartedly in support of, of, you know, transgender movement. That's that's your call, man. It's not my call to tell you who to love or if you want to self-identify as something or if you want to go have a sex change surgery. That's on you, man. It's not my business. It's not government's business. Yeah. How does that translate into, say, SeaWorld or um, some of the big, bigger companies that you have? And talk about the, your first real case, which I do first big corporate case of cancel culture, which was uh, SeaWorld. Talk about that and how that translated. What was the issue? And, well, I know what the issue was, but how did you overcome it? Well, I think with SeaWorld, and that was, I believe, one of the big first corporate cancel culture issues was we took a very similar tack, which was we're not going to just go out and tell you we're good people. We're going to show it. And specifically with SeaWorld, and this is, I would, my mind was blown. Nobody realized at the time that SeaWorld was one of the largest conservation companies in the entire world. Like they don't build themselves as a purpose-driven company, but man, if, if any kind of sea life is injured on the coast, they don't call like your local DNR, they call SeaWorld. Like two manatees were stranded outside of here in Charleston, outside of the dam up by Monk's Corner. They didn't call South Carolina DNR, they call SeaWorld. I had no idea. Yeah, SeaWorld has this massive, massive global rescue and rehabilitation program. And they, they were kind of of the mindset of, you know, in the Bible where, you know, Jesus says, when you pray, pray in private. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people have that mentality. When we do good things, when we don't need charity, we're going to keep it private because, you know, people that do great things for the world typically don't go out and say, hey, look at me. I'm doing I great. Don't, I don't tell people three-fourths of the things that I do. Yeah. That's right. Most of us don't. But we had to turn the park inside out. Like, they had this massive rescue and rehabilitation uh, building and these giant tanks, and they were all behind walls. And they were like, well, kids don't want to see manatees that are all cut up or sea turtles whose half their shells are gone. And I, and I went in and convinced them otherwise. Like, actually, people want to see the good that you're doing. You don't have to go out there and, and necessarily sing from the mountaintops to show the world the good things that SeaWorld's doing. And when we started doing that, um, things really started turning around for SeaWorld. Has it, are you still working with them? Has it progressed? I mean, part of the thing about developing a plan and implementing a comms plan and turning them inside out, people have to follow through. Have you seen yeah. that follow through with SeaWorld? Yeah, no, we worked with SeaWorld for about six years. Um, you know, their attendance was in the tank, their their stock price was in the tank. We, we flipped all that around and after about six years, uh, their CEO left and a whole new board came on and um, we're, we're no longer working with them now. But, you know, those six years, I, I spent probably about 70 to 80 percent of my personal time doing nothing but trying to save that company. And it worked. So let's talk about cancel culture from a 50,000 foot view. So, I mean, what I mean, you described it a little bit earlier, but when did we begin to see this emerge? When did you think that it metastasized and became what it is? Uh, you talked about it. Does everybody who goes through this, um, is it possible to recover? I mean, I, I, I would ask you that. I don't know. If, I don't even think you're back on social media. I mean, you might I'm, check I'm, in every every now and then, but I don't see you as frequently. Yeah, because I just stopped running my mouth. Right. I mean, like, just like look, man, I, I got bigger things to worry about. I started realizing um, 
here's a problem I think with the internet what the human brain didn't evolve or wasn't created by God or if you ask me both <laughs> um we're not supposed to focus on all the problems of the world. We're not supposed to be connected with the amount of people we're connected to. The human brain evolved to connect with our families and people in our community. And what's happening is instead of focusing on the problems in our communities, now everybody is focused on every problem. And not every problem is your problem. So what happens is people get on the internet and they're bombarded by hundreds of these issues a day and they have to have an opinion on every issue. So they start running their mouths and they end up just offending people and getting in trouble and causing this whole thing that we're in. I kind of came to that conclusion about three years ago after my cancellation and was just like, not all these problems are my problem. Why was I in a fight about abortion? Like that shit doesn't like, look, I'm pro-life, but that's not, that's not my fight. My fight really is building my business creating jobs, making money, changing the direction of my family tree for my family. And all I'm doing is just running my mouth for no reason that has no benefit to me. So are you uncanceled? I mean, is that a thing? I'm just, I want yeah. people to be able to, because I mean, you, you really do a good job of delving and unpacking this, uh, both in a tangible way and in somewhat of a sociological way, you know, just kind of explaining what it is and then unpacking it very tangibly through your life experience. So would you consider yourself to be uncanceled? Right yeah. now, did you recover? Oh yeah, I've 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 recovered. I mean, I, I no longer have any repercussions. And in fact, you didn't even remember, and most people don't remember. I remember because it was such a, a personal hit to me. Of course. You know, and people finding my wife's Instagram account and making fun of the way we dress our kids, you know, and my wife crying her eyes out to sleep. That you know, to sleep, that that kind of thing. So to me, it was personally dramatic. Most people don't remember it. The other thing about the cancel culture movement is that crises. You know, remember when we got into politics, there were like stories that would last a week or at least a day. But now crises happen like every yeah, time. I mean, do. You, do you remember? I mean, you, it was on your show how ignorant uh, Jakey Knotts was yeah. uh, towards Nikki Haley and told one of the most xenophobic, racist jokes we've ever heard. And it lasted for weeks, weeks, weeks. I would it venture even to say that Nikki Haley wouldn't be who she is today if it wasn't for that one episode. I would, I would actually say she wouldn't be who she is today if it wasn't for Sarah Palin. Well, but it, I think it, was, it's a, it was both at the same time. It was a confluence. So you're right. You're right. You're right. It was that Sarah Palin came in, Sarah Palin came in, made that endorsement, gave her all that money. And then her entire message was, I'm against the good old boys. And she used the episode where Senator Knotts called her, can we even say, you know, yeah, I mean, you uh, called her a raghead. Um, so just so your folks know, because um, you say the R word, they're going to think something else, right? So uh, this drunken redneck senator, I think he had had two whiskeys, like four Budweiser's, came on my internet show that we had like 10 years ago and called him Haley a raghead and things blew up. That If that happened today, it would be a story for like four hours. Because, and you know, the crazy thing about the way society works is that he got, he ended up getting uh, canceled. Uh not because of what he said, but it was just a convergence and a confluence of all of those things. And he ended up getting beat in his election. And it's kind of weird because Nikki Haley transcended into this figure right now that uh, is at the top of Republican politics or as close to the top as you can possibly get. That's right. And she still hates me. But um, <laughs> she, for some reason, she thinks I like planned that whole thing. And if you ever watched that episode, you could tell he was just drunk. Oh, Nobody she hates you for that? Oh, I mean, I, but you didn't. I, maybe you laughed about it. I don't know, but you didn't say it. No, man. When that happened that long ago, you know, that was we were one of the very first to start streaming that kind of thing. And when it happened, I just went like stoic and have my put my hands in my head, uh, my 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 head in my hands, 
because I didn't know what to do. I, I was in such shock. And I was like, think, what just happened? That, do you think that the cancel culture is rooted in politics or is it something, I know it says cultural, man, but is it something that's cultural that's rooted in something else? Is it, is it political undertones? Uh, yeah, here's what I, I genuinely think has happened. I think that over the last few years, this country has had it too good. I, I, I honestly think that most people haven't had a lot of the problems that the world has faced globally, right? We're not at a, a big war or starvation. We've had COVID, but you know, we're not diseased and everybody dying. I think when things are too good, people start focusing on stupid shit. I really do. And I think now that this inflation is happening, I think that as a recession, maybe even a depression comes, I think it might actually naturally kill out some of what's going on right now. I think the country is going to continue being very divisive. But I think when people have real things to worry about, you know, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You stop, you, you focus on really dumb, dumb shit whenever you have plenty of food, plenty of money and plenty of housing and you're safe. When that's when the world starts going to hell, you're not gonna you're not gonna care about what someone says on Twitter. I could be wrong. I could be. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Hmm. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think you are wrong on that point. I mean, that's an interesting way to think about it. Uh, actually, I think you might be a nail on head. Um, tell me this. Why did you write this book? I wrote the book because um, look, I can never give a specific plan to anyone. Like, I can't say you can, you know, here, here's 13 chapters to solve all your problems, but I could at least put some guardrails in place. And after I went through what I went through, I don't want other people to really feel that again. And so I wrote the book just to get, just as a brain dump, right? It, it really started as like a list that I was going to tweet out. And then I was like, maybe I can expand this a little more so that when- Yeah, people, don't go to Twitter, put it on paper. Yeah, you yeah. Said, right? Learn the lesson. I, I don't want people to go through that that hell that I went through. And this could at least provide some guardrails for them if, it, if something like that does happen. Well, I, I appreciate you for writing this book. I do think though, some of it, and how would you respond? Some of it is- um, is it cancel culture uh, at the beginning? I don't know how to really frame the question. Uh, or is some of it consequences for an ignorant action or an ignorant? Because, um, I mean, 
your tweet required education. I think your tweet was bad. It was poor taste. It was ignorant, et cetera. You recognize all of that. So yeah, you I should do. be able to get your life back for lack of a better term. That's right. Um, but there are others who go out and continuously beat the same drum. Is that cancel culture? Or is if I don't want to buy tickets to Dave Chappelle, is that cancel culture? Or is that a consequence for his behavior or actions? And that's just to use an example. The only one I can think of right now. I, I think the Dave Chappelle issue probably is cancel culture. I mean, I think trying to silence someone for their political belief is cancel culture. But at the same time, there are, are I, I would say arsonists, right? If your house is always, always on fire, you're probably the one setting the fire. You're probably the arsonist, right? Something is going on in your life. Now, Dave Chappelle is a comedian. Like that's his, that's his shtick. That's why I wouldn't put him in that category. But if you're someone out there that's continuously just running their mouth for no other reason than to run your mouth, then you're probably an arsonist. Or if you're just a horrible human being, like that's why I always try to make an exception for people like Harvey Weinstein, right? Because people are like, oh, well, you wrote this book to get people like that out of trouble. No, there are really horrible, evil people in the world and they deserve to be canceled. But if you just crack a bad joke or if you're a restaurant owner, I have a friend who's a restaurant owner and a waitress made a bad comment. He had to fire the waitress, but then um, the customer went and put stuff all over Yelp and Google reviews that this restaurant is, is, um, is racist. Like that's not that guy's fault. He took the appropriate action. He shouldn't have to go through the repercussions of because one of his staff was an asshole. Mm. But there's a lot to chew on in this book. There's a lot to chew on in this conversation. My good brother, we give your kids my best. Wesley Donahue, when is the book going to sell? When can people get it? Where can people get it? July 12th, you know, all the places, uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble, all the major booksellers will have it. Who's your publisher? Oh, I used a, a company called Scribe. There yeah. you go. So it's partly self-published, partly it's like a, it's a hybrid, hybrid published, uh, hybrid self-published. There you go. That means you get more of the money in your pocket, more of the revenue in your pocket. That was so. the plan. All right. There it is. Wesley Donahue, thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Thanks, man. I'll tell you, this gonna be your-